0: Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, and this week we're broadcasting from my apartment, La Chateau Dot. It was a, uh, a difficult week for myself and particularly my dog, Samson. He's currently uh, laying here by the table sleeping. Uh, but back on Wednesday, as I was getting ready for work, um, on no, Tuesday rather, gosh, it was almost the whole week. So Tuesday, I'm getting ready for work, hop in the shower and hop out and find four separate uh, presence from the dog on the floor near the uh, near the door. And he's housebroken. So that was a concern to me that uh, there was a lot of poop there to clean up. And as I was cleaning it up, he ends up vomiting on the floor. And then as I'm cleaning that up, he poops again. And in the span of several hours, we're talking eight or nine different uh, poop incidents, four or five different vomiting incidents, Basically, he was very, very, very sick. I mean, I didn't think a dog, he's only about 45, 50 pounds. I didn't think a dog could have that much stuff in him. So I uh, rushed him to the vet hospital. They did x-rays and thought that there was something obstructing his innards. Ended up having a surgery, and there was actually nothing inside his intestines, but he had a softball-sized mass uh, next to his bladder that apparently was pushing up on his uh, intestines and they kind of accordion style compressed and it was making it hard for him to actually eat or digest food so he uh he stayed overnight at the vet hospital for a few days he's got an incision along his belly and it's been a challenge to uh, arrange to have him watched because like any beagle He likes to try and scratch at things, including uh, the uh, stitches that are on his underside. So I've got him in a bandage. He's wrapped up in a shirt. He's got his uh, cone of shame on, and I'm watching him like a hawk even as I'm recording this week's podcast. Speaking of the podcast, we do have some good news. We are now on Google Play officially. I mentioned to you last week that we were hoping that was going to be done. It's now official. Uh, In addition, apparently we're also on Pocket Casts. I can't remember if I mentioned that in an earlier podcast or not, but one of our followers on Twitter sent me a link to that. So now, when you go to the Fiskamall website, that is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L dot com, uh, any episode, you should see a list of links underneath it where you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or Google Play or use the RSS feed for any particular app of your choice. If you are new to the show, welcome. If you're a veteran, I appreciate you for all of you. I like when you can take a moment and go write a review on the iTunes store and leave us a rating as well. I love the uh, the five-star reviews. You're more than welcome to review us for something less if you don't like what you're hearing. But in particular, I appreciate the text feedback in the reviews because it gives me an idea uh, if you like what we're doing or if I need to make some changes. Also, you can join the conversation on Twitter. The show's Twitter handle is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. And you can also use the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag FSCK. I check on that a couple times a week and respond when I can. So there's been a lot going on in Washington this week. A lot of stuff happening politically. I'm not going to get into too much detail about the main event which was the testimony from the former FBI director James Comey. It's something that everyone has talked about to death but it's telling about how thoroughly screwed we are as a nation politically when prior to his testimony the day before you have the president's son on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News and decided to uh, kick things off with this. Don't
1: you wish you went to Washington so you could be dealing with this every second of every day? You know what? I've never seen hatred like this. I mean, to me, they're not even people. It's it's so, so sad. I mean, morality's just gone. Um, Morals have flown out the window. We deserve so much better than this as a country.
0: Now, I will say there is something wildly fucking entertaining about a Trump kid lecturing anybody about morality. But did you catch there in the beginning? I have never seen hatred like this. To me, they're not even people. Who the fuck says the other side is not even people? If you're going to get on Hillary Clinton for saying basket of deplorables come back with they're not even people because someone happens to be investigating the fact that you've got a bunch of fucking cronies with regular contact with the goddamn Soviets and people want to know what actually happened. I don't get it. So anyway, that was Wednesday. Thursday, of course, Comey went to Congress and had both a public session in the morning for several hours, and then a classified session at one o'clock in the afternoon. And the defense from the president's surrogates has really been wildly incoherent. I mean, on the one hand, they argue that Uh, The guy's a leaker. So Comey admitted that he leaked information uh, to the press through a friend of his. But then they also say that he's a liar. Well, which one is it? Because if he's leaking, it doesn't make much sense to leak lies. You know, you need to kind of pick one argument. Either he's not credible, he's lying, or he is credible, but he's a dirty Washington veteran by being a leaker. Uh, Gary Kasparov, who's the uh, world-renowned chess champion, actually tweeted something to that effect, saying, quote, I wish Trump would decide if Comey is leaking or lying, because accusing him of leaking lies doesn't make much sense. And does not make much sense really encapsulates so much about the Trump presidency, but it also really is kind of the essence, the core of describing how surrogates have tried to polish up this ball of shit Uh, If you listen to Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, I, I like Wallace a lot. He's a good reporter, and he's interviewing Ronna McDaniel, who is the new chairman of the Republican National Committee, replacing Reince Priebus, who's the chief of staff now. And to his credit, Wallace sticks on her at length about defending the president. And what you're going to hear in this next clip is both how the politicians in Washington have defended Trump and also a particular gem from McDaniel herself. Here we go.
1: And one more question in this regard, though. Some Republicans are defending the president's actions as Comey laid them out, other, as others have laid them out, by saying that he basically doesn't know any better. Take a look. And no one has either informed him or he's been unwilling to be informed about why the sort of request like the one he made would be inappropriate. He's new at government, and so therefore I think that he uh, he's learning as he goes. Chairwoman uh, McDaniel, do you buy that defense that if the president did something, anything inappropriate, it's because he's basically an amateur? Chris I'm going to go back to this was just James Comey's version of events we don't know what happened in these conversations that's his interpretation Uh, I take the president at his word uh, but that's just one person's version of events the president knows what he's doing And, and, and let's go back to what James Comey even said say his version is true and he said the president said I hope you let this go Listen, I'm a mom of kids. There's a difference between saying, I hope you do your homework and go do your homework.
0: No, (laughs) no, there's not. There's absolutely no difference between those two things. Maybe in whatever hippie town this particular McDaniel grew up in, I don't know, but where I grew up, a parent saying, I hope you did your homework. If it's not a command to go do your homework, it's your homework better be done or else. That was totally not the point that she wanted to make. And I'm sure she thinks she knocked it out of the park. But Jesus, I don't understand how these people can be so fucking incompetent and make so much money doing it. Like, when I was a kid... My grandparents made me do my homework before I could go out and play, because doing my homework, getting good grades, learning, becoming smarter, those were supposed to be the keys to success in life. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to finance a dog's vet care, run a business, and I watch on TV these absolute idiots making bank fleecing America. I mean, y'all ever read the book or watch the movie Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, I'm not going to ruin the plot for you. Essentially, it's a spy novel about British intelligence, and they're trying to find a mole who works for the Soviet KGB. A little bit of irony there. But I always enjoyed the title of it because it just kind of rolls off the tongue, and it ties in well with a particular plot. And I keep finding myself thinking of that when I heard Comey's testimony and saw the follow-up from Trump's surrogates, except instead of Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy... It's more like leaker, liar, crony, sly. I mean, this is just so ridiculous. You have Comey who admits that he's leaking stuff to the press. Go back to our episode that we titled No Heroes in Washington. I told y'all Comey was a scumbag. But then you have the president who lies his ass off about everything. So while I can understand you uh, being distrustful of James Comey, I can't understand anyone who thinks they should trust Trump. And then at the same time, you have all of these cronies who hang around Velveeta Vladimir like... Like his kids or Ronna McDaniel or all the other people that are getting some kind of money from basically exploiting America. And I'm just, God, I, I don't know. All right, so let me move on. In addition to Comey's testimony, that was not the only dumb shit that happened in Washington this week. Representative Dana Rohrabacher, Republican from California, decided that we really should start backing ISIS. Yes, ISIS. Here's the clip from a House hearing. Uh, We have recently seen an attack
1: uh, on uh, Iran and the Iranian government. The Mullahs uh, believe that Sunni uh, forces have attacked them. Uh, This may signal uh, a uh, a ratcheting up uh, of certain commitments uh, by the United States of America. And as far as I'm concerned, I just want to make make this point and see what you think. Isn't it a good thing for us to have uh, uh, the United States finally backing up Sunnis who will attack Hezbollah and the Shiite threat to us? Isn't that a good thing? And if so, maybe this is a Trump, uh, maybe it's a, a Trump strategy of actually supporting Uh, one group against another, considering that you have two terrorist uh, organizations. Those attacks were claimed by the Islamic State. It's never in our interest to support a terrorist group like the
0: Islamic State. I have a hard time deciding what is funnier. Watching Roerbacher's dumb ass smile as he's asking this idiotic fucking question or that five-second span of total abject silence as the experts testifying to this House committee are just stunned that any elected official would actually think to verbalize something so fucking stupid. I don't understand these people and how they work. In addition to that, there are other shenanigans going on in the House. They passed a bill that would create a new 15-year mandatory minimum for anyone who happens to engage in sexting. This act of texting explicit images back and forth will now carry a minimum 15-year federal prison sentence, and it applies to teenagers. And that became the whole discussion on the House. So, uh, introduced by Representative Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, called it the Protecting Against Child Exploitation Act of 2017. Theoretically, this was based on this notion that it was necessary to help prosecute people engaged in kiddie porn. And in reality, it actually doesn't do that. It's going to end up having something where if you're a horny 16-year-old teenager trying to convince your equally horny 16-year-old girlfriend to send you nude pics, congratulations, you now get 15 years in a federal prison. So I'm going to link in the show notes a, uh, a very good report on it from Reason Magazine, Uh, That Elizabeth Nolan Brown put together. You can read that kind of fuckery for yourself. But what I got a kick out of is that when people pointed out this is rationing up mandatory minimums which are already a problem and it's going to affect teenagers, Johnson, the sponsor, decided to go quote the Bible and he says, quote, in Scripture, Romans 13 refers to the governing authorities as God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. I, for one, believe we have a moral obligation, as any government should to defend the defenseless. Now, that was Louisiana's fine representative, but you know what? I have a belief myself. I personally believe we have an obligation that if we're going to quote the Bible, we might want to read the rest of the Bible, because also in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, quote, "'Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay,' says the Lord." I don't understand the type of dumb shit that these legislators do. They don't think about the unintended consequences. They don't think about other ways to achieve the same objective without fucking over innocent people. And then, to justify their stupidity, they go pull out the Bible. It just utterly, totally disgusts me. So in North Carolina news, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in an 8-0 to zero decision that our state legislative districts were unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. This is now the third significant voting case that we have lost here in North Carolina, and we have paid an ungodly sum of money to private lawyers to do it, and it just blows my mind. So now we have the uh, two of our congressional districts have been found to be unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. The 1st District was unanimous 8-0, to zero. the 12th District was 5-3, to three. the voting rights case was never heard at all, so the circuit court opinion stayed in effect, and now you have this summary affirmation where the Supreme Court unanimously, again 8-0, said that the lower court's opinion is going to stay in effect. So essentially, the representatives in North Carolina are blowing taxpayer money to lose cases left and right. Look, guys, if we're going to end up losing and that's all we're going to do, pay me. I'll tell you, pay me. Okay, I will charge you less. They are charging you tens of millions. I will only charge you millions. And I give you my personal guarantee. I will do no worse than what we're doing right now. In law enforcement news, we've got a lot of craziness all over the country. Uh, we do have one bright spot. So there was a uh, situation in Philadelphia where a drunk patron at a comedy club just went off on a Philadelphia officer who was a model of restraint. I'll link that story in the show notes. The uh, interesting part of that particular scenario is that the young lady going off at the time was a TV news reporter. Uh, I do believe she's lost her job, but it just goes to show that anyone's crazy when they get a little drunk. Uh, in Tulsa, we have police ended up shooting and killing a man. Uh, when they were actually going to him for a mental health check, they were trying to serve a mental health warrant to have him committed for some issue, and they ended up shooting that guy dead. Uh, so that is Joshua Bari. I probably mispronounced his name 29 year old black man in Tulsa. Same spot where Terrence Crutcher was executed not too terribly long ago by police. Out in Las Vegas, we have an officer who choked a man to death. Um, Kenneth LaPera with the Metropolitan Police Department in Las Vegas uh, ended up killing Tashi Brown. In that particular case, LaPera has been charged with manslaughter because the cause of death was asphyxiation related to police restraint. That was the uh, quote provided by the coroner. Particular note of how disgusting we've gotten as a society, there were two separate fundraisers one for the family of Mr. Brown's kids, now that they don't have a father anymore, and then a separate one for LaPera himself and Guess what? You could guess which one raised more money. Yes, the fundraiser for the officer who killed the guy has already raised more than $30,000 in less than a week. The one for the dead guy's kids is at a couple hundred bucks. Welcome to America. But not to be outdone in the choking people-to-death department out in Harris County, Texas, Yeehaw! Y'all might remember we've talked about these people a few times. A man was executed for peeing in public. So it turns out there was a, uh, a gentleman named John Hernandez, 24-year-old Hispanic male, who had the misfortune of eating at a Denny's restaurant where uh, Harris County Sheriff's Deputy Shauna Thompson and her husband Terry Thompson also happened to be. Uh, Hernandez went outside and was peeing out in the public, and the husband of the deputy decided to take it upon himself to restrain this guy the wife decided to join in. You could see him, uh, see her rather, holding his feet. And there's a video as there's a bystander standing there watching these two literally choke the guy to death. Uh, he, Mr. Hernandez ended up in the hospital. By the time he got there, he was brain dead. So he was declared clinically dead about three days later. But essentially out in Harris County, Texas, we're now giving out the death penalty for public urination, which here in North Carolina is a class three misdemeanor. As with the LaPera case, both the deputy and her husband have been charged with murder, but we'll see how that actually turns out. Let's take a look over in Colorado, uh, up in Longmont, Colorado. We now have a uh, rental property for poor folks where the landlords have decided that the police could come in at any time and use searching of those apartments as training for their drug dogs. They actually sent a letter to the residents saying, quote, This is a notice to visit your unit on Wednesday, May 10th, between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. It is helpful if you are present so we can visit with you personally, but it is not mandatory. Please note that we will occasionally have canine units with LPD accompany, to, uh, accompany us. For purposes of training and compliance, apartments will be chosen at random. Guys, Look, jeez, I swear, every week I do this podcast, and I do it because I enjoy talking with y'all, I love the feedback on Twitter, but when you actually look at the shit that happens every single fucking week, it just blows my mind. The police do not have an unchecked right to search random apartments for any reason, all right? The Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution it makes that very clear. It says the right of the people, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, shall not be violated. It's just absolutely ridiculous to me that this is now considered something that's normal, that, hey, we can pick a random apartment, let a random canine dog in there and use that for training. God, absolutely nuts. Not to be outdone on the absolutely nuts department, we go over to New Jersey, where a totally innocent guy had the misfortune of being in a car accident because police were engaged in a high-speed chase. Now, you might remember from last week's episode, we talked about a 12-year-old in Louisiana who ended up being killed as part of a high-speed chase because these things are dangerous and police need to learn how to apprehend people without chasing them down the fucking street. But in New Jersey, police were after a 48-year-old man named Leo Pinkston. They chased him several blocks, caused at least two different car accidents, ended up shooting out of their cars as they're chasing the guy. Like, we're training police in drive-bys in Jersey now, apparently. And ended up, Pinkston crashed into a utility pole, and a totally innocent bystander, a 28-year-old man, happened to be... uh, caught on fire essentially his car caught on fire he caught on fire he exits the vehicle you see him drop to the ground trying to put the flames out the flames are out he's no longer on fire and what you see is a swarm of cops coming at him with guns drawn kicking the shit out of him an officer comes up and kicks him in the head kicking upward now, of course, people are defending the police, saying, oh, they're trying to put out the fire, but there happened to be video, of course, by bystanders. One of the rules that we've set on this podcast is police continue to do dumb shit, even when they're being recorded. So this ended up, you see this officer coming at the guy and doing a fucking football kick like he's trying to kick a field goal, and... They continued to kick and stomp on him, and that guy is now currently in the hospital, had to undergo surgery, a five-hour surgical procedure, according to the follow-up. And, of course, you have the Blue Lives Matter crowd making the argument that this is all totally fine. It's no big deal. One of the uh, comments from the Jersey City Police Officers Benevolent Association says, quote, taking swift action isn't always elegant, but this video clearly shows that the officers acted quickly to extinguish the flames and pull this man out of harm's way. I'm going to actually link the video for you in the show notes you can decide for yourself, but here's a pro tip. If you're ever on fire, don't kick upward to put the fire out. All right, that's enough with the news. Let's go ahead and transition to our Law 140 segment on President Trump and blocking people on Twitter. before we get into the details about this week's segment, I do want to clarify something. So we got a uh, tweet from one of our listeners, at Two, and she noted that I've never actually explained what Law 140 is, where that name came from. So if you happen to follow us on Twitter, my personal Twitter account is at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. And part of how I uh, became Twitter, famous, I call myself a C-list Twitter celebrity, is that I like talking about the law, trying to convey it in a way that makes sense for folks to understand it, and I do that through a lot of threads. So it's one of those things where it's not always the easiest thing to read, but when you're trying to explain legal concepts, you got to go where people are, which is Twitter, and you got to do it in a fashion that makes it easy for you to actually compose. So for me, I tend to put tweets together while I'm waiting in court with nothing to do. So when we're trying to figure out a title for what these were going to be called. We actually ran a poll for it, and the winner for that contest was hashtag Law140. That is hashtag LAW140. If you go search that hashtag on Twitter, you'll find dozens of different topics where I've tried to break down some of the legalese. So this week's topic actually started with the news, There is a foundation called the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University in New York. And they sent a letter to the president demanding that he unblock certain Twitter users because they're claiming that it violates the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. And this has actually prompted a lot of discussion among folks that it would be considered kind of uh, free speech advocates, free speech scholars of sorts. Uh, a lot of different people have weighed in with different perspectives on it. And I'm personally of the opinion that Donald Trump choosing to block people does not violate the First Amendment. Uh, others, of course, disagree. But what I want to do is give you some of the law about the First Amendment and how it works. And like we've done with some of the other segments, the first place you have to start is the law itself. So the text for the First Amendment to the United States Constitution says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, The thing with free expression is that there's been so much case law that I'm not going to give you specific cases as we go. I'm going to link some of them in the show notes, but what I'm going to do in particular is kind of explain the framework that the Supreme Court has developed When they're considering First Amendment related questions. And the first thing you have to keep in mind are what are called standards of review. So the Supreme Court has fashioned these tests that when they get a particular set of facts determines how they're gonna analyze what the results should be. And there are three main standards of review that they use. So the most deferential to the government is called rational basis review. So this is for most typical government policies, and the law is presumed to be valid, and it will stay valid as long as it is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. So it has to be rationally related to a legitimate interest. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have what is called strict scrutiny, where in that case, a law is presumed to be invalid unless the government can show that it is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest so there the interest has to be compelling as a, as opposed to merely legitimate and it has to be narrowly tailored meaning it's got to be the least restrictive way of achieving that particular objective. In between the two, we've developed something called intermediate review, which just means that the uh, method used to restrict something has to be substantially related to an important governmental interest. Now, in addition to those particular tests, there are certain types of attacks on a statute. You can attack a statute for being too vague. So it's void for vagueness because the law has to make clear what is prohibited. You can also attack a statute for being overbroad or an overbreadth attack where if something is regulating speech that's allowed, you're allowed to regulate this particular type of speech but the law is written in a way that it sweeps up a bunch of other speech that normally would be protected under the First Amendment, that law is void as well. So you've got your types of tests, you've got your types of statutory attacks. In addition to all of that, the court has developed what's called a forum analysis. So you have a traditional public forum, like streets, sidewalks, things that have been used since colonial times and before for engaging in expression with other citizens. You have what are called non-public forums, like your jails, your military bases, something where you have no real free speech rights there. And then you have what is called A quasi public or a limited public forum where the government has designated something as being a forum, they can make certain regulations for that, but after that, they have to be bound by the regulations that they set. Then, separate from your forum analysis, you have what are called time, place, and manner restrictions or TPM restrictions. So, when the government passes a law that regulates speech, that speech, uh, that regulation rather, can either be based on the content or it can be neutral as to the content, something that is content neutral. If the regulation is content neutral, it doesn't matter what particular viewpoint you have, it's trying to regulate something else, then it's subject to intermediate scrutiny. So for example, there's the case of Ward v. Rock Against Racism, where folks wanted to have a, uh, a rally in a park in New York and there was a regulation about not having anything over a certain volume at a certain time, and the court found that that was fine, that there was a important governmental interest in regulating noise pollution, and that the particular uh, regulation in place was um, – substantially related to that still allowed alternative forms of communication they could do it at a different time or at a different location but it was something where the governmental interest in regulating noise was permissible and not related to the content of the particular speech now if the regulation is content based it's automatically under strict scrutiny so when you piece all this together you have your content based restrictions are under strict scrutiny Content-neutral time, place, and manner restrictions are under intermediate scrutiny. And a uh, regulations regarding a limited or quasi-public forum have these additional things where the rules the government sets for the forum are in addition to the time, place, and manner restrictions the government has to abide by those as well. So trying to piece all of this framework together, the question becomes, what is Twitter? What kind of forum is it? And the act of blocking somebody, is that a content-based or a content-neutral restriction? on the forum analysis piece, I would make the argument that it's not a forum at all. So there are several cases where lower courts have weighed in on, for example, Facebook pages, something where a government agency has created a page on Facebook, they're tasked with moderating, maintaining that particular page, and if they happen to hide or delete comments, That becomes a content-based restriction. So by creating the page, they have created this limited public forum that is bound by certain uh, policies that they set. So for example, if their social media policies say you can't use profanity, profanity can be deleted because the government created the forum. It sets the rules for the forum. But anything beyond that cannot be deleted because there's no regulation in place on that. So the fact the government doesn't like you can't be used as a way of deleting or hiding your content. As long as you abide by the rules of the quasi public forum. In the case of Twitter, there's no real control there. So Donald Trump can block you, but all blocking you does is prevent him from seeing you. You can still see his comments. All you have to do is log out and all of his stuff is there for everyone to see. You can still tag him if other folks happen to uh, see your stuff. You can still quote, tweet him and everything else. All it does is limit your ability to respond in thread form Replying to his particular tweet. You can create your own thread. It's something where prior to the recent innovation in Twitter with threading, you would have just done a, uh, R- a manual. You type in RT, at real Donald Trump, and then quote what he wrote. But the point is, Trump has no real control over the forum. He can't delete your stuff. He can't stop others from seeing your stuff. And Twitter can change the forum at any time. It's something where they could get rid of threading. This didn't exist until fairly recently. So I'd contend that as we're going through this forum analysis, you don't even get to a First Amendment issue because there's no forum there. Twitter controls everything. The government has no real control over any of your stuff. But then the next question becomes, let's assume for the sake of argument that this is a limited or a quasi-public forum is the act of blocking you a content-based or content-neutral action? And the answer there is, it's not really clear. Now, if I choose to block you because you say something I don't like, then sure, that's a content-based decision. I could understand where that would become a First Amendment violation. But what happens if you, for example, use a block list? Twitter allows you to import lists of blocked users from other people. We don't know what criteria they're using. It's something Trump could use on his own. If he decides that he's going to uh, block anyone who happens to have a Russian IP address, You know, that's not a content-based decision to block somebody. Now, we all know he's not going to do that because then most of his millions of followers would go away. But there are ways to block people on Twitter that are totally unrelated to the things that they say. How do you decide whether or not it's content-based or not? So those are the types of questions that have to be answered. But I think the bigger piece is Twitter is not a forum in the traditional sense. It's not something the government has brought into creation. Donald Trump's Twitter account existed before he was president. It's not something that the government can control. How threading happens is solely up to Twitter. There's nothing in place that the government can change or influence. There is no moderation capability there. And the government, through Trump, has no control over your speech. You can still see everything he says. You can still say anything you want. It's kind of like if you're in a conference room and the president has the microphone, you don't get to go up to the podium and take the mic. You can still be in the same room. You can still talk in any other part of the room. You just don't get to have his particular microphone. And I think that's a a similar uh, analogy here. You know, Twitter is one big conference room. We all have a microphone that doesn't give you the right to an audience. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this particular week. Thank you so much for listening in. Please remember to look us up on the iTunes store, rate us, leave us a written review, tell your friends about it. Also, please make sure to join the conversation on Twitter using their account at Fiskamall. that is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L, as well as the hashtag hashtag Fisk. That's hashtag F-S-C-K. On behalf of myself and Samson, who's laying here by the table still recovering, thank you for listening in. I hope all of you have a blessed week.